Wonderful. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome out to Grace Church here at the Medina East Campus. We're so glad that you're able to be with us this evening as we're continuing in our series that we started last week, if you were here, that we've been calling All is Calm. And of course, this series, as you can probably tell from our bumper and from uh, the way it looks around here, this is our Christmas series. And so in this series, if you missed last week, basically what we've been doing is we're talking about the calm and the peace that is available to you and I uh, because of what Christmas communicates to us. And so what we've been saying is we've been saying that Christmas tells us uh, that when you understand the true meaning and you understand the true message of Christmas, uh, that there is peace and there is calm Uh, That is truly available to us, regardless of the chaotic circumstances that you might be facing in your life. And so last week, if you were here, you might remember uh, we we said that really for a lot of us, I think if I was to ask you to kind of summarize for me uh, what the Christmas season looks like for your household and for your family and in our culture, we said, honestly, probably for most of us, uh, the, the word we would use last to describe those things would be the word calm, right? So for a lot of us, when we think about Christmas in our culture, in our family, in our homes, we might use the word chaotic, we might use the word busy, we might use the word frantic. For some of us, we use the word expensive. For some of us, we might use the word dysfunctional, right? And there's a lot of terms that we might use to describe the holidays in our families, in our, in our households. But for many of us, I think the word we wouldn't use is the word calm. But in this series, what we've been investigating together is we've been saying that if you understand the true meaning of Christmas and the true message behind Christmas, which is what we're kind of digging into together in this series, we said that it actually has the potential to bring an inner confidence inside of you that can allow you to have calm even in the midst of the most chaotic circumstances. Uh, That regardless of what your relational status might be, that regardless of what your family dynamics might look like right now, as messy and as dysfunctional as that might seem, uh, as, as, as crazy as your, your job circumstances and your financial situation and your health situation might be, that in the midst of that chaos, that there is actually calm that is available to you because of what Christmas really teaches us. So we've been talking about that. How can we say all is calm in the midst of even chaotic times? And Christmas teaches us that we can. And so we've been unpacking that a little bit, uh, talking about the Christmas story together. Today, as we uh, continue this conversation in our second week, we want to actually pick up and look back at uh, the passage we started uh, last week when we were together. And that, of course, is in Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to just grab those with me, I would invite you to take them and turn with me once again. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1, which, of course, is where we find the Christmas story. Uh, according to Matthew, the gospel writer. So go ahead and flip there, Matthew chapter 1, if you would. And um, just mention to you that if you didn't bring your Bible with you here this evening, that's not a problem. Uh, we should have some Bibles available for you. And so in those chairs in front of you or uh, underneath you, you'll find these black Bibles that look like this. And you can find Matthew chapter 1, page, uh, found on page 675 in those Bibles. So go ahead and flip there if you want to. And then also just wanted to mention that if you do not own a Bible, and so if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we think it's tremendously important that you do, and we would want you to have one so you could just take a copy of ours and make that a gift from us to you. Okay, so Matthew chapter 1, go ahead and get there. That's where we're going to be kind of focusing our time uh, together. Now, as you're flipping to Matthew chapter 1, I think, this is kind of my assumption, but um, my guess is that probably all of us in this room can relate with the challenging and kind of awkward, um, uh, awkward process of writing your resume, right? Um, it's been a long time since I've had to write a resume for a job. It's been a while since I've done that. But I do remember 
uh, when I did write a resume, when I, when I had to put that out there, the, the challenging and awkward process that that was, right? It was challenging, as many of you know, because you're trying to figure out, man, what do you include in this thing and what do you keep out? And, and so you're, you're trying to figure that out. What do I exclude? What do I strategically include? And so that could be a challenge. And it's awkward. The reason I say awkward is because you guys know, like on a resume, what you're trying to do is you're trying to represent and present yourself well to a company. And so you're, you're trying to, to show yourself as a competent person with, with good character that has exactly what you're, you're the right fit for the job. And so you're, you're really trying to promote yourself in a resume. And so that can be, for many of us, kind of awkward because none of us really like to promote ourselves. And so you're always wondering, man, what, what should I add? What should I strategically keep out? For many of us, we, we, we don't put things in there that we think are going to reflect poorly on our character, on our core competencies. And so if we had a previous employment that didn't end well, sometimes we'll just kind of leave that part out. We'll add certain things. We'll embellish on certain things. And so it's no wonder because creating a resume can be so challenging and so awkward that so many people have been known to lie or to embellish a little bit uh, or to leave key things out of their resumes. In fact, this is actually a really common practice. I was actually reading a study this past week. Uh, there was a study that was done uh, for CareerBuilder. Some of you might know CareerBuilder is uh, one of the most visited employment websites that's on the internet today. And there was a, uh, a, a study that was done where a group of 2,000 hiring managers and human resource professionals were surveyed. And what they found is of those that were surveyed, 58% of them said that they have caught uh, uh, re- people on their resume lying in some way or another. That's not a surprise. The most common lies that they found include embellishing skill sets, exaggerating responsibilities, extending dates of employment, and then lying about academic degrees. And so this is kind of a normal thing. What I thought was so fascinating when I was reading this was that uh, they, they listed a few of kind of the more radical examples uh, that they've seen. I just thought I'd mention three of them to you. Uh, here, here's one. This is actually a resume that, that, that uh, someone turned in. One person got busted for claiming to be an Olympic gold medalist on their, uh, on their resume. Now, unfortunately, as you, you and I know, the Olympics are pretty well documented on, uh, documented on the Internet, so it didn't take much digging before they found out that this guy was lying. Needless to say, he didn't get the job, right? Uh, here's another one. I thought this was interesting. One person listed a previous job role as an assistant to the prime minister of a certain country. Now, what made this so fascinating, well, that sounds really good, what made it so fascinating was the problem was the country the person listed didn't have a prime minister. And so this person got caught and, again, didn't get the job. This one was probably my favorite. This person was a 32-year-old applicant who claimed to have 25 years of experience in a certain field. So, you know, back when I was seven, when I got started in the industry. And so what this all pointed out was, This is such a common practice to embellish, to lie, to exaggerate, to strategically omit certain things to make yourself look better. Now, I know that a lot of people do that. Of course, none of you do that, right? Here at the East Campus, we're a little bit above reproach on that. I'm sure none of you have ever done anything like that before. Uh, But this is something that's a pretty common practice. Now, why is it that I'm telling you about resumes? What does this have to do with anything? Well, the reason that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about resumes is because today what we're looking at again is we're actually looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And we actually started looking at this last week. If you were with us last week, we kind of started looking at this genealogy. And we said, man, genealogies, like why are we looking at a genealogy? Genealogies tend to be the part of the Bible that we skim past, tends to be the part of the Bible that we skip over. It's full of a bunch of names that we don't know, uh, names we can't pronounce. And so a lot of times we skip this and we get on to 
the rest of the Christmas story, the part that we actually like to read. Uh, but, but what we said last week is we said that's a mistake, uh, that skipping the genealogy is actually a big mistake. Because when Matthew starts to tell his story about Jesus, he decides to begin his story with a genealogy. Last week, we said that this genealogy is not just a simple list of 42 names. We said that within this genealogy, it actually contains with it everything that you need to know about Christmas. In fact, we even went as far to say this. We said that that this genealogy communicates everything you need to know about Christianity. That the whole message of the gospel is explained and is displayed to us through this genealogy. And so it's because of that that we've been digging at this a little bit. Now, here's what you might not know about genealogies. Genealogies back in this time, in Jesus' time, were actually a lot like resumes. And so back then, uh, the way that you would oftentimes represent yourself to a culture, the way that you would oftentimes present yourself was through your genealogy. And so you would use your genealogy as a way to kind of show uh, your credibility, as a way to kind of show your character and your core competencies. By showing who you were related to, uh, you would do that through a genealogy. And as you can imagine, just like in our day and age, that back then, because genealogies were like resumes, people would embellish People would omit certain things that they were maybe embarrassed of uh, in their genealogies. So, for example, Herod the Great, some of you know he was a major uh, player in the Christmas story. Uh, historians point out that he was, uh, he was one who, who actually expunged certain names from his genealogical record to make himself look more awesome. And this is just what people would do back then. They would edit, they would, they would, they would hide, you know, eh, uncle, you know, such and such. He was kind of crazy, so we'll just kind of chop him out of the genealogy. And this guy, man, he was awesome, so we'll put him, we'll, we'll emphasize him in the genealogy. And so what we have here then, G, uh, when Matthew begins the gospel, he starts with Jesus' resume. And he's like, here's Christ, and here's his resume. Now, now, that's all fine and good, and at first glance, it actually looks like a pretty typical resume. But when you start to dig at this a little bit, And when you start to scratch a little beneath the surface, what you'll come to find is that this genealogy is unlike any other ancient genealogy that exists. That this genealogy is characteristically different. And what I mean by that is this. Is this genealogy actually seems to be doing the exact opposite of what the other genealogies tended to do in that time. Now, what am I talking about? All right, well, let me me try to explain this a little bit. I want you to notice a few things in this genealogy. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. We actually did that last week. I read the entire genealogy, and I was lucky enough to make it through all four services on our weekend without messing up too bad. So I'm not going to do it again because I'm not going to try my luck. But I want to just kind of focus on a few key aspects of this genealogy. Now, here's the first thing I want you to notice. I need, need you to put on your thinking cap a little bit with me here. But I want you to notice first and foremost that Matthew, in his genealogy, that there's almost a, a format to it, okay? I guess a better way to put it is there's almost a genealogical protocol, all right? L- let, me, let me show you what I'm talking about. Just glance down right in the middle of the genealogy. Look with me down at about verse 7. Just start in verse 7. Notice what he says. He says, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asa, and Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram, And Jehoram was the father of Uzziah, and on and on and on and on and on. Now, again, I know this is full of names that you're not familiar with and and that are hard to pronounce, but I just want you to pay attention to a couple things. The first thing I want you to notice is that there is a format to this. And what is the format? Okay, the first thing is this, that in ancient genealogies, you always took the most direct approach, all right? And And so 
you don't elaborate on siblings and brothers and sisters. You, you simply show the most direct route from one person to the, to the next. That's what you do in a genealogy. So what do I mean? Well, let me explain myself. So look again at verse 7. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, Solomon was a king, and he was a king who had many wives. Uh, the Bible explains to us that he had over a thousand women that were in his harem. And what that meant is this dude had a lot of kids, right? He had a lot of sons. But the Bible only mentions in this genealogy one of them. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Why does it only mention one and not the others? Because it's going for the most direct route. That's why. And that was genealogical protocol, all right? You don't, you don't put extra names that you don't need to. This isn't a family tree. It's just trying to trace a lineage from one person to the next, all right? Here's a second thing I want you to notice. This was genealogical protocol. You'll notice that every name mentioned in here is a man. Such and such was the father. Such and such was the father. Such and such was the... No daughters are mentioned. And no mothers are mentioned. Now, why was this? Now, again, you got to understand this culture. This is not our culture today, but back in Bible times, uh, women, there was a very, very, some of you know this, there's a very low view of women. And so oftentimes when it came to genealogical records, you, did, you omitted any women because to put a woman in your genealogy because they were so lowly viewed in that time uh, would have been discrediting to you. And so you just didn't do that, Okay. So by and large, in this genealogy, it looks very similar to most of the genealogies of that time. Follows the same protocol. But what you notice, like I said, when you dig deeper and when you scratch beneath the surface of this genealogy is that Matthew does something very, very, very different. And on multiple occasions, he breaks protocol. Why does he do that? Well, we want to look at that today. Let let me just show you where he breaks protocol. Let's look at the first instance that he breaks protocol. Look at verse 3. Here's what Matthew says in verse 3. He says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Okay, so, so Matthew's given this genealogy. Again, genealogies were like resumes back then. There was a protocol to them. And then right here at the very beginning, you see that Matthew breaks protocol. I want you to notice a couple things. First and foremost, notice that he mentions Tamar. He says, uh, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, and their mother was Tamar. Now, now again, like I mentioned, you don't, you don't mention women in ancient genealogies. You don't do that. But here's Matthew going out of his way to highlight this woman, Tamar. All right? it, Matthew could have easily just said, Judah was the father of Perez, and moved on. He could have done that, but he didn't. I also want you to notice what he does here. He also mentions Zerah. So he says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Now, again, you don't mention siblings. You go direct line. Now, that begs the question, why in the world is Matthew doing this? And the reason he's doing it is because he's trying to highlight something. And and he wants us, some of you might remember if you were here last week, we said that Matthew is actually writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And so because it was a primarily Jewish audience, they would have been extremely familiar with the Old Testament. And so what Matthew is doing is he's trying to draw to our attention. He's trying to call to remembrance this story, the story of Judah and Perez and Zerah and Tamar. He's trying to bring that story up, which begs another good question. What was that story? Because my guess is that most of us are probably unfamiliar with the story of Tamar and Judah and their children, Perez and and, um, and Zerah. So what's that story? Okay, so that story, I'm just going to summarize it for you. You don't need to flip there. It's actually found in Genesis chapter 38. It's a very, um, 
interesting and disturbing story. In fact, let me just kind of explain it to you. Like I said, you don't have to turn there, but it's a really complicated story. It's kind of one of those her brother's sister's best friend's mom's uncle's dog's hamster kind of stories. So I tried to map it out so that way I could explain it. All right? So just kind of track with me on this. All right? So this is the story that Matthew is trying to draw our attention to. So in Genesis chapter 38, it tells us that there's this guy named Judah. Okay? So Judah, as was mentioned, was Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. All right? So he's part of Jesus' genealogy. So Judah, according to Genesis chapter 38, tells us that he has three sons. His three sons are named Ur, which is such a weird name, Ur, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Okay? So these are the three boys of Judah. So the Bible tells us that one day, Judah's out and about. He decides to play matchmaker. He wants to get his oldest son a wife. So he finds this girl. He introduces him to his son, and they end up getting married. Her name was Tamar, okay? So Tamar marries Ur. Now, the Bible doesn't give us much. If you ever read Genesis 38, it's wacky. It doesn't give us much. It just tells us that Ur did evil in the eyes of God. That's all it says. And it says because of that, he died. Okay, so Ur's dead. And so Tamar now is a widow. And so the Bible says Ur is dead, so Tamar now goes and marries Judah's second son, this dude Onan. Now, I know that sounds really weird to you. You're like, dude, you're marrying his brother. That's so messed up. But you have to understand that back in this time, in Bible times, this would have been a normal thing. Uh, Back in these, because there was such a low view of women, if you were a widow, you would have been in a very vulnerable place in society. And so one of the ways that families would provide social security for a widow is that you would oftentimes, the widow would oftentimes marry her brother-in-law as a way to be provided for. So that was kind of normal. Okay, so Tamar marries Onan, and the Bible goes on. This is, this is in the Bible, so I, I kind of got to say it, but it's so weird. But the Bible says that, that Tamar wanted to have kids and Onan didn't. So whenever they were um, intimate together, um, Onan never quite sealed the deal, if you know what I'm saying. In fact, the King James puts it this way. It says that Onan would spill his seed on the ground. All right? It's like, can't make this stuff up. So weird. And so the Bible says because of that, it was wicked in God's eyes. So Onan dies. Okay. So now Ur is dead. Onan's dead. You only have one left. And so now Tamar is trying to get married to Shelah. And the Bible says that Judah, her father-in-law, is like, you ain't marrying him. Right? I already have two sons that married you, and they're dead. Right? So you're like a man-eater. So you cannot marry my third son. So she keeps putting it off and these type of things. So anyway, the Bible goes on. And it's a weird story. The Bible goes on to tell us. If it isn't weird already, now it gets really weird. So the Bible goes on to tell us that this girl, Tamar, decides that she's going to try to trick her father-in-law, Judah. So here's how she does it. She knows that her father-in-law has a weakness for prostitutes. And so one day he's off on business and she decides that she's going to dress up like a prostitute and veil herself so that her father-in-law can't recognize her. And anyway, long story short, she sexually entraps him and he ends up thinking she's a prostitute and they end up being pregnant. So, so Tamar gets pregnant by her father-in-law, Judah, and they have some kids and their kids happen to be Perez and Zerah, all right? Now, my guess is that it's about this time in the conversation that you're starting to think that your family's not as dysfunctional as you thought when you first walked in here, right? I mean, this is crazy. This is dysfunction 
Junction. This is like something you would see on Jerry Springer, right? This is like, oh man, Uncle Billy got the bed, you know, he married my brother and those type of thing, and you're, you know, your daddy's your grandpa, and it's like, it's so messed up. This whole thing is all jacked up, and you kind of see it there, right? And, and some of you are thinking to yourself, you're like, why are we talking about this? I mean, this is a Christmas series. Why are we even talking about this? Listen, the reason we're talking about this is because Matthew wants us to. This is what's so wild about this genealogy. This is supposed to be Jesus' resume. And Matthew, listen, he doesn't omit this. He includes it. But listen to this. He doesn't just include it. He goes out of his way to include this, all right? He breaks genealogical protocol to say, hey, remember that whole crazy scenario that happened with Tamar and her father-in-law and their kids? And that was wacky. And he draws our attention to it. And the question is, why? Why is Matthew doing this in Jesus' genealogy, in Jesus' resume? Well, it's not a fluke because he does it several times. In fact, I want you to notice the second time that he breaks protocol. Look down at verse 5. He says, Solomon was the father of Boaz, and here he goes again, whose mother was Rahab. Now, once again, he brings in a woman into the genealogy, which, like I said, back then there was a low view of, of women. But not only does he bring in just any woman, he brings in Rahab. And my guess is, some of you might not be familiar with the Bible. We don't have to get into her story. But if you know anything about Rahab, you probably know her occupation. Anytime she's mentioned in the Bible, it's always in association with her occupation. What was Rahab's occupation? Someone tell me. Help me. She's a prostitute. That's the one thing that Rahab is known for. She's actually brought up in the book of Hebrews. And you know what Hebrews says about her? It says that she was saved by faith, but it mentions Rahab the prostitute. That's what she's known as. That's what she's called. Now, again... Matthew draws that out. He doesn't omit that. He doesn't hide it. But instead, he breaks genealogical protocol to pull it to the surface. Then he goes on again. Look what he says next. He says, Boaz was the father of Obed and and whose mother was Ruth. Some of you might know Ruth is actually a really, really awesome woman in the Bible. You can read about her story uh, in the book of the Bible called Ruth. And it's all about her. And it talks about her story. It's phenomenal. But the reason that Ruth would have been bringing her up would have been discrediting was because Ruth uh, was not a Jewish woman. Uh, She was a Moabite. Some of you might know back in Old Testament times that there was a lot of racial tension between Jews and non-Jews. And so the Jews had a high view of those who kind of were of their ethnicity and of their race. If you were a Gentile, you were considered a second-class person. And here you have, once again, Matthew is drawing. Now, what is Matthew doing here? Notice that what he's including in Jesus' genealogy are all of these outsiders. You have gender outsiders. Like I said, women back in that culture were were considered, you know, kind of lower class. You have social outsiders. You have have people who are cultural and racial outsiders. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite. Rahab was a Canaanite. You have moral outsiders, people that were prostitutes, Jerry Springer scenarios, craziness that's all represented. And Matthew doesn't just add it, but he goes out of his way to reveal it and to show it. And the question is, why? And here's what I believe very, very strongly. I put it this way in my notes. I think he's trying to make this point. The point that Matthew is making is this, that Christmas, the story of Jesus, the birth of Christ, is God's invitation of grace to the flawed and to the broken. Why is is Matthew doing what no other king would, what, no other genealogical record of a king would do. 
Why is he drawing all of this out? Because he's trying to communicate something to us, and that's this, that this king is categorically different than any other king. This king's for the broken. This king's for the flawed. This king's for those who are sinners. This king is for the one who are the outcasts the gender outcasts, for the social outcasts. This one's for, for the marginalized, the disenfranchised, and the broken, and the hurting. That's who this king is for. See, what he's trying to emphasize is that Jesus came from broken and flawed people, and he came for broken, and he came for flawed people. See, guys, one of the things I love so much about the Bible, so much, is how, is how realistic the Bible is. It's, it's so real, it's utterly realistic about the human condition and about the human situation. And the Bible in many places is just so raw and so uncut. It doesn't mince words and it doesn't pull punches. And it'll tell you how things really are with the human situation. And it doesn't try to, try to flower that up. I've talked to so many people who are like, ah, I can't believe the Bible. The Bible's just so, it's so far away from reality. It's all, you know, butterflies and rainbows and muffins and everyone's all happy in the Bible and it's all kumbaya and all that kind. I'm like, what Bible are you reading? Well, I mean, for crying out loud, we're looking at the genealogy and we had to rate it PG-13. A genealogy that's rated PG-13. You read, have you ever read the book of Judges? My goodness, you want to take a bath after you're done reading that book. It's just so dark. There's so many things. The Bible is so honest about the human situation. And what is he trying to tell us? Here's what he's trying to tell us. Matthew is trying to tell us that Christmas is an invitation of God's grace to the flawed and to the broken. You guys, not only do you see it here, but I think you see it in an even stronger way in verse 6. I want you to notice what happens in verse 6. What Matthew does in verse 6 in this genealogy is just... Let's just read it. I'll just show it to you. Look at this. Look at verse 6. He says, And Jesse was the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, now I think what Matthew does here is brilliant. So let me, let me, let me show, you, show you what I'm talking about. So you notice again, he breaks protocol, and he brings in a mother once again. But the mother he brings up, fascinatingly enough, he does not even call her by her name. Uh, some of you know that the woman he's referring to is a woman named Bathsheba. Uh, the story that happens there is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Very fascinating story. I'd encourage you to read it. But you notice that Matthew, he does something really interesting here. He doesn't even mention her by name. He just says Uriah's wife. Now, let me just stop here for a minute because I'm assuming, I'm just guessing, this might not be the case, but I'm just assuming that if you're a woman and you're in this room right now, I'm guessing that you might feel right now a little slighted. Like you might be like, why is it that every bad example that's given to us in this genealogy is a woman? Why does that have to be? the? Why can't we talk about all the bad things the dudes did? Which by the way, dudes did a lot of bad things in this too. So to be fair. And now you're probably looking at this and you're saying, and now this next poor woman, they don't even call her by her name. This call her Uriah's wife. Like how many of you like it when you're just called such and such his wife, Right? especially if it's not your husband, then it's not even great at all. But, you know, so it's like, no one, that's, that can be so degrading. And I think for some of you, you might be thinking that. But, but let me just say that if that's the way you're interpreting it, I think you're interpreting it wrong. And here's why. I believe that what Matthew is doing here, and this is so good, I don't think he's slamming Bathsheba. I think he's slamming David. And, and let, me, let me explain this. So I, I want you to imagine with me for a minute that, that, this, that this whole room, I want you to imagine that we are an audience of first century Jews. 
I know, that's a typical daydream for you. And so we're, we're just an audience of first century Jewish people. Now just, just track with me on this. If we are a group of first century Jewish people, we know a couple things, all right? We know that genealogies are like resumes. We know that. And we know that on resumes, you embellish and you highlight the things that you're proud of, and you hide and you dismiss the things that you're ashamed of. We all know that. So here we open up Matthew's letter, and he wants to tell us about the Messiah, the Son of God. And so he's like, let me give you his resume. All right, so we're a first century Jewish audience. We're like, this is great. Messiah, wonderful. Let's read his credentials. Let's read his resume. And we start reading. And all of a sudden, we get to verse 3, and we see this crazy story of Tamar and Judah and the Jerry Springer situation that faced that. And all of a sudden, we're like, what? Matthew, why in the world are you drawing our attention? We're, we're even embarrassed that's in the Bible in the first place. Why are you making us remember that? And then we're like, okay, so we keep reading. We see that, uh, that Rahab is in there. And we're like, oh, man, come on, Matthew. You didn't have to do that. You don't have to bring that up. Rahab was a prostitute. She was a Canaanite. She was a, she was a gender outsider. She was a social outsider. She was a moral outsider. And you're bringing her up in the Messiah's resume? And then we see Ruth, the Moabite, and we're doing all this. And then I want you to imagine, you and I are reading through this as first century Jewish people. And then we get to verse 6. And we see that Jesse was the father of King David. And now all of a sudden we're like, all right, now we're talking. King David, there's a guy you want on your resume. There's a guy that you want in your genealogy, right? You guys know King David. King David was notably the best king that Israel had ever seen, right? This guy was like stellar. Having him on your resume was like, was like on par with having like Chuck Norris on your resume, right? It's a big deal to have this dude on here. King David, this is the same King David who had that whole situation with Goliath. Remember that? All the Israelites were terrified to fight the giant Philistine warrior. And little David comes up and he's like, what are you guys scared about? They're like, we're scared of that giant Philistine warrior, Goliath. And David's like, don't you have faith in God, noobs? And he goes and he gets a sling and he takes down Goliath with some smooth stones. A mighty warrior, a man of faith, becomes king, warrior, strong. The Bible says that he was handsome and he was ruddy, which I don't know what ruddy is, but I want it in my genealogy, right? And, and he's got all this stuff going for him. And King David, this is the King David that God said about him. This guy is a man after my own heart. And so as Jewish people, we would read this and we'd say, yeah, that's the guy I want in my resume. That's the guy I want in my genealogy. But do you notice what Matthew does? In the very same breath. Look what he says about King David. He says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, what is he doing? He's trying to draw us back to that story. Some of you guys know the story. I mentioned it to you. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And briefly, this is the story. David had a friend named Uriah. Uriah was a mighty warrior and a man of integrity. And David committed adultery with his wife Bathsheba. And then after she became pregnant because of their adulterous act he went on to plot Uriah's murder. So David, let's get this. We're reading through this genealogy. We're snubbing our nose at Tamar. We're snubbing our nose at Rahab. And then we get to the best guy in the genealogy. And he's done worse things than any of them. He's a murderer and an adulterer, right? And, and why is Matthew drawing all this to the surface because he's trying to reveal to us this incredible, profound truth that Christmas, that the birth of Jesus is an invitation of grace to the broken and, 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 and to the flawed. And he's making this point. 
and everybody is broken and everybody is flawed. Even the best guy in the genealogy is broken and flawed. So here you have Jesus' family. You have his family tree. And, here, and who do you have sitting around the table as equals? You have a Canaanite prostitute. You have a Moabite woman. You have crazy Jerry Springer scenario. You have adulterous, murderous King David. And all of them sit at this table as equals. Why is that? Because Christmas, because Christmas is a profound declaration that Jesus came from the broken and flawed, but he came for the broken and he came for the flawed. You see, what Matthew's trying to tell us, you guys, is that this is a different kind of king. This is a king that you don't have to clean yourself up for. This is a king that you don't have to have the right pedigree for. This is a king that you don't have to have the right moral performance for. This is a king for the broken. This is a king for the flawed. And this is good news. Because all of us are broken. And all of us are flawed. And that's why he came. That's why he's called the Messiah. Because we need a Messiah. And so he comes and and he says, man, this is what Christmas is about. Listen, you guys, I am so convinced that this is what Matthew is trying to show us. And one of the reasons I'm so convinced is because of what I know about Matthew himself. What some of you guys might not know is that the man who writes this book, his name is Matthew, is that when he first met Jesus, when he met him, he was a severely broken and a severely flawed person. When Jesus Christ found Matthew, Matthew was in a tough spot. In fact, it's interesting to me that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew actually writes about his first encounter with Jesus. I want to show it to you. It's so cool. And I want you to notice what Matthew says about his first interaction with Jesus. I'll put it up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But it's in Matthew chapter 9. Watch this. It says, as Jesus was, this is Matthew writing. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting. So I, I can't help but imagine Matthew writing this and kind of smiling because he's like, man, that's me. I made the Bible, you know. And so he's, he writes, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his, and look at this, where was he? He was sitting at his tax collector's booth. Where was Matthew when Jesus found him? He was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, you don't even need to know much about the Bible. And some of you maybe don't know a lot about the Bible. My guess is you probably know this much at least. That to be a tax collector back in that time was a hated occupation. Uh, You would have been considered a traitor because you worked for the hated Roman government. But in addition to that, you were considered a thief. Uh, because oftentimes tax collectors, they would, they would charge massive overhead on the taxes that were paid, and they would pocket it for themselves and get filthy rich. That's what tax collectors did. As a matter of fact, even if you're not a Bible person, my guess is you can finish this sentence. Just try it with me. Tax collectors and... That was terrible. Let's try it again. Tax collectors and sinners, right? And, and, and you guys know that because in the Bible, that is always associated together. If you were a tax collector... They were like, oh, yeah, that's so morally depraved. It's so morally corrupt that we just consider you on par with the sinners. You're a tax collector and you're a sinner. And the Bible says that when Jesus Christ first came to Matthew, he was sitting at the tax collector's table. Now watch this next part, verse 10. So later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. So Matthew's like, we had dinner with all my friends, right? They all came over. Verse 11, but when the Pharisees, the professional religious people, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? I just want you to imagine if you were Matthew, you were his friends, and you heard that, how you'd feel about that. Here's the religious leaders of your time. And their interpretation of you is that you are scum. You're not worthy of having anyone spend time. You're not worthy of be anything that has to do with God. 
Watch Jesus' response. To this. This, is what Math, this is what Matthew remembers about his first encounter with Jesus. Look what he says. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. Which, by the way, that was a massive slam to these guys. The Pharisees studied the Bible for a living. And Jesus is like, why don't you go study your Bible? And he said, and look at what it says when it says, I want, you to sh- I want to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Now look at this. For I have come to call those not who think they're righteous. That's the key. I have not come to call those who think they're righteous, but to those who know that they're broken. Know that they're fallen. That know that they're sin. That's who I've come for. And Matthew was the recipient of this love and this grace of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who writes this gospel. And so is it any wonder that when he starts his genealogy about Jesus Christ, the first point he wants to make is he wants us to know that this is a king. This is an invitation to the broken. And this is an invitation to the flawed. This grace is available to anyone. I don't care where, where you've been or what you've done or what you've seen. You cannot outsing God's grace. That's what Christmas shows us. This is what Christmas teaches us. You guys know what this means? You know what this means? It means some important things. It means this. It means that there is calm and there is peace available to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of the dysfunction and the chaos and the brokenness and the flaws that you might be facing right now in your life. That there is peace available to you. And what is the peace? Here's the peace. The peace and the calm that's available to you is that you don't have to behave yourself to God, that you don't have to get your act together and clean yourself up and make yourself presentable and then God will accept you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is no, Jesus meets you in your brokenness and in your flaws and in your pain. He meets you in, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Jesus came to us in our messy situation. Jesus came from messy and broken people and Jesus comes to messy and broken people. He came for us. He, he entered this. And you guys, I think this is so important, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. And I know not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus. Some of you might be investigating that. But I think this is so important for those of us who are Christians to remember as Christians. But I also think this is so important for us to remember as a church. Because honestly, sometimes what can happen, you guys, if we're not careful, that we, we, there's a natural tendency that we have. And I have it too. I, I'm the same way. There's this natural tendency that we have sometimes that we will come into a place like this as a group of Christians, of people who follow Jesus, and we will convince ourselves that we somehow need to pretend with God and pretend with each other. And so what we'll do is we'll walk into a place like this and we will present an edited version of ourselves to each other. An edited version where I have somehow deleted all of the imperfections and flaws and I've deleted all of the hurts and pains and brokenness and all the sin and I hide that and I conceal that and I emphasize all my strengths and all those type of things and I present an edited version of myself to you and to God. And we have a tendency to do that with each other. But you see, if this genealogy teaches us anything, it teaches us this. It teaches us that we can be transparent with God, and we can be transparent. With, we can be real with God, and we can be real with each other. We can't be, listen, it, for those of us who follow Jesus, we should never be surprised by sin. Never be surprised by sin in other people, and never be surprised by sin in us. We should never be surprised by brokenness, and never be surprised by flaws. Now hear me, I don't think that means we should be content with it, but I don't think that means we should be, we should expect it. We're broke, this is why we're here. 
We're here because we need the good, we need the great physician. We need a doctor. And so we come together because we're sick and we need Christ and we need him. And so we don't need to pretend, put a mask on like everything is all right. When it's not, there's brokenness in our lives. When those things are existing in that way. I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation and uh, it breaks my heart, but I've had this conversation so many times and it usually happens when someone finds out I'm a pastor, which is always really awkward because if I talk with like a neighbor or someone, they find out I'm a pastor pretty quick, they stop cussing and they, you know, they put the cigarette behind their back or whatever. And I'm just like, dude, it's not like that, you know, but um, so a lot of times what happens is I'll get in a conversation with someone and they'll find out I'm a pastor and they'll say, um, they'll say something like this, you know, pastor, and they'll say, should I call you pastor? I don't know what to call you. And I say, oh, no, just call me honorable reverend bishop. I prefer that. And uh, no, but I say, I'm like, no, just call me Tony, you know. And, and, and they say, so uh, they say, Here, here's my thing. If you knew me, they said, if you really knew me, if you knew where I've been and what I've done and what I've seen and what I've been part of, you would, you would not want a person like me in your church. And it always breaks my heart. Because I'm like, you don't know the Jesus I know. Like, you don't know the gospel. And, and, and so I always try to respond back to them. Usually I, re- I say something like this. I say, well, if you, kn- you don't, if, if you knew who I was, if you knew where I've been, if you knew what I've done, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. And so you should probably come to my church. You know? <laughs> and that's uh, kind of how I play it off. I'm like, dude, you, you got to understand. This is how it works. Because Jesus didn't come to congratulate the righteous. He came to forgive the sinner. That's what he came for. That's why he came, was to, was to do it. So, so listen, I've said this a million times before. I'll say it again. I'll say it again. I'll say it again and again and again. We would rather have you drunk in church than drunk out of church. Yeah, you're like, sweet. Yeah. It's not a challenge. Just telling you, all right? We would rather have you drunk in church than drunk out of church. We would rather have you struggling in your marriage in church than struggling in your marriage out of church. We would rather have you caught in addiction in church than caught in addiction out of church. Why? Because we need the great physician. We're not, we're not coming in here and saying, oh, we're broken people. Well, let's just all be broken. No, we, we've come together because we need the Messiah. We need the Savior, the one who's come to fix us. That only starts when we're transparent. It only starts when we're vulnerable or open. So if you're a person that would say, I don't belong here, man. All these people, I don't belong here. And the things I've done, the play, you, you gotta understand this. If, you, if you're a broken, flawed person, then let me just say this. Welcome home. You are among equals here. And th- there is no one who's got it all together here. That's why we come. It's because we need Christ and we need the Messiah. And he's the one who brings us into, into his likeness and into what he desires for us. Because the truth of what Christmas tells us is this. Christmas, Jesus coming, is God's invitation of grace to the flawed, to the broken. And all of us, all of us are flawed and broken. So now I'll end with this. If you're a person that's investigating Jesus tonight, if you have never embraced this king, maybe you've had a presentation of Christianity that told you you need to get your act together. That's not what Christianity is about. You don't behave your way to God. You don't work yourself to him through good works. That's not how it works. Christmas says that God worked his way to you. And in your messiness and all of your flaws and all of your brokenness, he wants to meet you right there. And if you surrender your life to him, the Bible says that he will take you to where he wants you to be. I love the way that um, John puts it. John chapter three, verse 17. We're all familiar with John three sixteen. You've probably seen that at the football games, the sign. You know John three seventeen. Here's what it says. 
John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it through him. So whoever believes in him, whoever believes in this king, will not be condemned. He'll be saved. He's the Messiah. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. If you've never embraced this Jesus, I would encourage you, even in this time today, and surrender your life to Christ. No time like today. And there's nothing magic. There's no formula to that. You can just pray between your heart and God's heart. Just say, God, I want you to be the king of my life. God, I recognize that you've come for me. I'm the broken. I'm the flawed. And I need you. And you can call on him. And if you call upon his name, he will meet you in this moment. He will meet you right here and now. I'd encourage you to do that. As we pray and we sing here in a moment, I would encourage you to do work with God. Talk to him. Deal with him. Work it out with him. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, I want to say thank you for your words to us tonight, God. It sounds weird. I want to say thank you for genealogies. Wow, that's wild. That you, in your infinite wisdom, have included such amazing truths about yourself to us through your word in this way. And uh, Father, I really just want to ask you tonight, especially Jesus, that you would, Lord, that you would help us to, um, to recognize in our hearts Jesus, that what you came to do was, was you didn't come to set a good moral example for us. You didn't come as a, as a good uh, advice giver. You came to save. You came from brokenness and flaws, and you came for us who are broken and who are flawed because we need a savior. And Jesus, Christmas tells us that. Christmas tells us that, that this is a profound invitation from God. That God, you are reaching your hands out to us and you are inviting us to be called part of your family. That in the same way these people who are listed are listed in the genealogy and the family of Jesus Christ, that when we come to you and when we embrace you as king, that you invite us to be part of your family. That we can be called family of the king. It's amazing truth. It's an amazing, miraculous reality. And I pray, God, that you would help us to embrace it tonight. So as we take this time to just pray and to think and to sing, I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to do work in our hearts with you. And God, I ask you that as we sing, that we would just sing with a heart of of gratitude and gratefulness for what you've done for us. God, you're the king of the broken. You're the king of the flawed. I'm so thankful for it. So thankful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.